1: That's right, Whistler, welcome to episode 202 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the urge to flee at the first sight of an Imperial presence, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler!
0: Hey everybody, or based on that description, perhaps I should say, Eek! Eekhead!
1: <laughs> Let's get the hell
0: out of here! Run! And, How appropriate is that, given our opinions, uh, in many cases, over the last time that we had an episode focused on a Chuck Wendig Star Wars novel? One would think that we would have ran from the subject of this episode, but uh, no, we we kept to our wits about us and have
1: tackled this book as well, and now we will in discussion. I blame the Vong. They taught me to embrace the pain. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode we tackle Chuck Wendig's second aftermath novel, Life Deck. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's arrogance. (laughs) And I'm sitting here thinking, wow. I'm going to use that
0: someday. The Vong taught me to embrace pain. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to use that the next time there's an alt-legends discussion going on. If you don't know what that term means, by the way, check out episode number 200. Um, yes, so we're dealing with life debt, and... Life Debt was kind of a surprise. It and Empire's End, the second and third books, kind of came out of nowhere just in the sense that initially we were given to believe that Aftermath was simply a single book and then before its release, they said, no, no, it's actually a trilogy. Although whether or not it be a highly connected trilogy or something looser was yet to be seen at the time, uh, it is somewhat more connected uh, here in terms of the characters, a situation somewhat continuing over from the previous book, but definitely the characters carrying over that we met back in Aftermath.
1: Yeah, that's Uh, the angle is what threw me off because the first book didn't the first book was part of the journey of the force awakens and I was like but there's two more books to this series like how do-? that was when I realized the journey of the force awakens was a title that wasn't working. Yeah, it was a meaningless title except for when it was being published as opposed to
0: anything about the stories themselves. Yeah. This is another one that gets that Barnes and Noble special treatment, so you've got the regular version in hardback. There is also a version out there in hardback that includes a bound-in two-sided poster kind of like with Bloodline, one side being a schematic basically, though not a very deep Detailed one of the Millennium Falcon, the other side being a schematic of Mr. Bones that is bound in, in this case, not at the end of the book like with Bloodline, but at the front of the book. And there was, just like with Bloodline, there was a uh, promotion going on. I think this one was through Books A Million, if I remember correctly. I'd have to go back. and lose Books A Million or Barnes & Noble. Uh, it had a promotion going on for signed copies, where you'd have a signed copy with Chuck Wendig's signature. And for me, getting Chuck Wendig's signature at the time was kind of, because I hadn't read this book yet, I was kind of like, oh, well, it's another Star Wars author's signature to get. I don't particularly like it. I don't particularly like, you know, the original Aftermath. I thought it was an okay story, but there were so many issues surrounding it, and, and with the the writing, but OK, I'll get another signature. So this is another of these that I've got multiple copies of, two different ones sitting on the shelf, one regular one that signed one Barnes & Noble special edition that is not, uh, and we wound up getting a review copy after it was already out, so now I've got one that we can uh, actually use as a giveaway here, Mark, if we want to add that to the end of the episode. So that's sort of the context of it. In general, I think this is actually a pretty good book. Uh, I enjoyed the ride throughout this book. Some of the issues that I had with Aftermath have been dealt with already, so as we get into the spoiler section we'll talk about those Banthas in the room, those three Banthas in the room from Aftermath and see if that has changed here, but I found the writing enjoyable. It's. It seems like there's more at stake this time around. The characters have more depth because we've already met them before in Aftermath. So, I actually really enjoyed this one. I would almost say, because this one sort of leads up towards the Battle of Jakku, I'd almost say that Life Debt is a must-read for someone who's following story group canon. The problem with that, of course, is that to make this a must-read and to really get the most out of these characters, that then requires the person to go back and read Aftermath, and I have a very hard time recommending Aftermath to anyone. So, a good book in its own right, but the fact that it makes aftermath more relevant and it's going to mean more people have to read a substandard star wars book in that case uh, does make a make me a little bit leery of recommending it but um I think it's worth it. I think it'd be worth slogging through Aftermath to get to this one because this one has more relevance. This one has a better story.
1: This one you're really going to enjoy. See, and I almost think you can get by without the first Aftermath. Like, I think that Chuck does a a good enough job with this one set up of, you know, know there's a team. You kind of know what their agenda is. You have hints of the story before, but I'm, I'm with you in that aspect of I'm very hesitant to reference that book to anybody to ever want to get. But I agree in the aspect of this is doing one hell of a setup for Empire's End. By the end of this book I was really impressed with where the story was going, which was something I didn't think I would be when I first open the book. Uh, there are elements of the story that feel like they're going to be homages to legends, but I don't get the same feeling that I do from, say, Filoni or John Jackson Miller or James Lucino when I think about Wendig. I, I feel like Wendig's more coincidental. Uh, I feel like the only thing he seems to be good at with adding to the story really seems to be diversifying the cast. And you know, I, I don't necessarily feel like that's always a good thing because uh, sometimes it's kind of distracting, which we'll get to that. Uh, but the Imperial angle of the story for me was very good. The recovery team story is probably the second group. Uh, but again, I feel like the story lacks when it comes to the big three. I, I think most of these new books do. It's like they wanted the big three for the films and they had that idea, but they really have no idea what to do with them in the books or the comics. And I think that's like the thing that's really disappointing me when it comes to Leia's character especially. You know, I mean there were so many angles I wanted her to go and yet here we are again and I, 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 hate, to, I hate to feel like she was the damsel in distress, but But in a lot of ways, that that is kind of how it felt like she was introduced, but in a way that Han's the damsel and it's still Leia's distress, though. It was like, I need my husband found. You need to find him. Go find him. Find him now. And I don't know. there There was a lot of when it came to Leia Han's characters, I felt like a lot of their plots were too convenient. You know, it was like, oh, guess who happens to be here? Oh, look who just showed up. Like, I don't know. It's like one of those movies you're watching where you can guess every single person coming around the corner. And while I wasn't guessing everything as it went forward, but there were some reveals like, oh, hey, I bet so-and-so is just like that other character from Legends that Wedge liked the wife and the guy turned out to be like an undercover guy or something. And There was a lot of those kind of coincidences that I was like, is Chuck doing this on purpose or is this completely coincidental? And I I have a hard time with that. Like, I I don't feel like Chuck's going out of his way to pull those things in on purpose. I think he's just kind of getting lucky. But the other side of it, too, is there's something going on on Jakku that I never thought about. And this book, it brings that attention to the forefront of your knowledge. It doesn't give you too much information, just enough to know that there is something big going on on Jakku. We just don't know what the hell it is. And that got me really intrigued. I'm really excited for Empire's End, which is probably the craziest thing about this whole... Chuck Wendig experience for me. The writing style and stuff, I, again, I went with the audiobook, so I didn't have much of an issue. I think I've listened to the book about six times, and it wasn't until the sixth time that I did have the one issue, which we'll get to here in a minute, that caused me to have a little a curveball moment where I was like, wait, what the hell's going on? Is Mark Thompson having a stroke? I literally thought Mark Thompson was having a stroke because of how he was reading it, but I managed to miss it the first five times I listened. So clearly, you know, I'm listening to it while I'm vacuuming at the theater, so I, I must have been moving something that was really loud, and I missed that section because Because, you know, for the most part, most of the little issues I have went past me. It wasn't until I was really paying attention to this stuff and I pulled the book open again. And and see, I think that's the the issue I'm having is when I pull the book open with Chuck's stuff, I start noticing things and start nitpicking on little things. And yet I have also noticed that if I don't open the book, most of Chuck's stories don't seem to latch on to me. When I was going back over this again, I've, I've six times and I don't remember much about anything aside from the Imperial angle and the recovery group, Like, everything that's going on with Han and, and the backstory there and, and, and what's going on with Chewie, like, I don't remember much. And what I do remember, I felt like it was very convenient. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now, consider that your spoiler warning beyonders and sensions of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so, summary time. Basically what we have here is a
0: story where the characters that we saw last time, right? So we're talking about Nora Wexley, the Rebel slash New Republic pilot, her son, Timon slash Snap Wexley, who gets his nickname in this book from Wedge, who appears in The Force Awakens, who is sort of a, a technically adept kid, who has a droid named Mr. Bones, which is a repurposed battle droid uh, for security, so to speak, uh, plus bounty hunter Jassimari, former Imperial loyalty officer Sinjir Rathvelis and uh, John Barrow, who is a New Republic uh, Special Forces kind of guy, back, kind of shoehorned into the end of the last book, who's now part of that group. They have become basically Imperial Hunters. They're out after sort of the most wanted of the Empire. And in the process of doing all this, they gain a good reputation for it. They come back, and it turns out that Leia asks them, hey, I need you to help me find Han, because it turns out that that interlude back in Aftermath, in which Han and Chewie were fed information about how Kashyyyk is right for being liberated it was a trap it's a trap and as a result they get jumped essentially while Han and Chewie are separated Chewbacca and a bunch of other Wookiees wind up getting captured Han manages to escape and Han has spent the time since the previous book trying to save Chewie but he's got to figure out where he is first And when Leia is talking to Han via comlink or via communications array or whatever, uh, he winds up being attacked by pirates and she doesn't hear anything from him. After that, he goes dark, which causes her to think that something is amiss and that somebody needs to go find him. So that group winds up being the ones essentially expected to go find Han. In the course of their investigation, they wind up eventually running into Han, sort of on a parallel mission path, and together they wind up leading the liberation of Kashyyyk after liberating a prison called Ashmead's Lock, where they're managing to save Chewie and other rebels who had been captured, including ones from years before, which includes Brinton Wexley, the father of Timon husband of Nora, which is a little awkward because Nora has started to have a thing for Wedge and at that point. Now, as all of this is happening in the background, we learn that the mysterious Fleet Admiral from Aftermath is Gallius Rax, who was taken as a young boy from Jakku. Well, not really taken. He stowed away aboard Palpatine's ship, uh, the Imperialis from the Lando comic, while on Jakku when he was young, who then gets essentially given special treatment and training by the Emperor. And now he's sort of carrying out uh, last-ditch contingency plans and such from the Emperor, it seems like, as sort of an almost thronish figure in the background. We see him interacting with Ray Sloan, who is now Grand Admiral, Ray Sloan starts looking into his background to kind of see who he actually is. And part of this large machination going on by Gallius Rax is, hey, Sloan, I've been pretending to be this contact for the rebels or for the New Republic and giving them information. We need to finally reveal who it is, but not that it's me. We need to reveal that it's you to gain their trust and then you can engage them in peace talks. And while you're engaging in supposed peace talks, we'll have this devastating attack on the New Republic. So Sloane winds up uh, on Chandrilla, which is the uh, new republic capital of the time. Again, it rotates, eventually reaching Hosnian Prime. And in the process of all this sort of home front strife going on with you know Nora and Brenton and Tim trying to get back to normal and so forth. And what does the team do at this point now that they're back, et cetera, et cetera? We have a celebration of what's referred to as Liberation Day. And at that celebration, where Ray Sloane is uh, in the audience, these rescued rebels, including Brinton wind up turning on the New Republic. They have been programmed while in the pods, the Matrix-esque pods uh, at Ashmead's Lock to basically be sleeper agents. Uh, chaos ensues. Mon Mothma is injured but not killed. Sloane winds up having to escape. Brenton winds up having to escape. The two of them wind up escaping together and going to where it looks like Gallius Rax came from, which is Jakku, even as Sloane is realizing that this all-out assault that she thinks was supposed to happen because of all these Imperial starships hidden in nebulae across the galaxy turns out to instead be this kind of surprise infiltration from the inside assassination attempt. It turns out that those ships that she thought were going to be heading for Chandrila instead are all heading for Jakku as we set the stage for the Battle of of Jakku. So it's definitely a middle chapter here, but much more tied into the main characters than we're used to. But I think before we get into this, we really need to be able to hit, as mentioned back in the non-spoiler section, those three Banthas in the room again to make sure that we see how they have changed, if at all. Mark,
1: are you game for that? Yeah, let's uh, you know try to stay positive but we call it as we see it and you know we don't expect you to agree with us so if you don't hey that's fine you know try not to lambaste us too much because we're kind of rolling with it here we're uh, embracing our dark side if you will because it's about balance and sometimes you just gotta swing to the dark. So it's funny
0: is he talks about dark side I actually like this book so I'm kind of like I I think this turned out better but let's hit the three. Um, So number one was writing style. Last time we really really disliked the writing style of After Because it was was present tense, which made it somewhat jarring for some, and it was full of sentence fragments, as if Chuck Wendig had failed middle school grammar, hadn't figured out what a bunch of other punctuation marks did, so he just uses periods everywhere. And it comes off sounding as though, when reading it aloud, using the punctuation actually in the book as opposed to correcting for it in the audiobook, it sounds like it's read by William Shatner. Trek Shatner, like Captain Kirk is reading the book. (laughs) It's like the walking
1: comma and... The Shatner Comma. Exactly.
0: Uh, However, this time, what I noticed was two things. One, there is less of the sentence fragment issue. He does still use them, but he uses them when it's more appropriate to use a fragment in terms of the way that the thought is progressing and where other punctuation other than periods should be used to set off things like parenthetical comments and stuff like that. He actually uses the appropriate punctuation. So it's not the one third or more sentence fragments thing like we saw back with Aftermath. Still, some of them but better. Also, I think the present tense works better this time. We talked last time with aftermath about how it worked better if you listen to it because present tense makes more sense as someone sitting there telling you the story than if you're reading it on the page. And what he seems to have done here is he took the narrator that's sort of this, you know, it, the narrator is always sort of that generic third person narrator in most third person books, and instead infuses the narrator with some sarcasm at times and some jokes at times, not from the character speaking, but at, or thinking, but. In In the narration, which to me makes it feel a lot more like somebody's sitting there telling you the story. And that works much better for me if it's present tense. So to me, the writing style, while similar to Aftermath, is enough of a grade higher. That it didn't really bother me this time, like it drove me nuts with aftermath.
1: See, Mark Thompson would apply some of the character personalities to the narration for what you're speaking there. Like when John Burrell, especially when like when he was thinking, when it was the narrative was kind of in his head, the way he thought took on the way that Mark would use his voice. But it was it was very subtle. I, I I'm with you in that. I really feel like Chuck did step down uh, his style, and I don't know if that was something he did on purpose. I, I hope so, because like that, that so far has been my biggest issue with Chuck Wendig's being an author in Star Wars is it was so hard to read that first book. Uh, that I did, I, I switched to the audiobook. Now, with the second one, I didn't have that issue. It wasn't until, like I said, the fifth time through that I was going through that I started to pick up on smaller things, uh, but I think that's one of our, our third issues, right? Uh, yes. Do, <laughs> the interrupts, I mean the interludes? <laughs> kind of, yes. Uh, at least something from one of the interludes. Uh, so, number
0: Two. Second bath in the room at the time we talked about was expectation versus reality, that when it came to Aftermath, people were expecting this first adult novel set after Return of the Jedi to be very large, very important, very impactful to include the big three and so on. And it really wasn't. Instead, we got this group of characters we pretty much never met uh, or at least never met at that age in the case of Timon with established characters as sort of background characters most of the time. No Luke, Han in an interlude. I think Leia showed up maybe in a, a transmission or something, and that was about it. And it just was a big letdown compared to what people expected that book to be, especially in light of a lot of comparisons between it and Heir to the Empire. So, the expectation level was high. It got the Phantom Menace effect. When it didn't turn out to meet the expectation, it got blasted. I would argue that this time, that is a non-issue. Because you look at the book, you see the title, you see the descriptions. It's obvious that this is going to be about the Kashyyyk situation. Uh, It's obvious that because it's about the Kashyyyk situation, and we had the interlude with Han and Chewie back in Aftermath, that they're going to be in it, so there's at least some of the big three. It turns out that everybody but Luke of the big three is in here. And because this is a second book in a trilogy, we know to expect the characters from Aftermath coming back again as opposed to their existence and being the primary characters being a surprise or a shock. I would even argue that those who really were like, ugh, I really don't want to read Life Debt, it's just going to be more of the same, are still in that camp of having realistic expectations, um, because they expect more of what we got before. But my, I would say that this actually benefits from low expectations. I was not looking forward to this book at all, because Aftermath was not one that I particularly enjoyed all that much, but then this one turned out to be quite good, and that, w- that was a, a very pleasant surprise for me. So, it turns out that in that case, this case, low expectations with a strong out wound up being a really good thing
1: i think yeah it's almost like aftermath kind of slapped us so hard that we were like gun shy with the second one and then when we saw it we're like oh look at that rifle it's so pretty i, I was in the same boat like i wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much and the elements of jakku the way it, it builds up you know, I'd say the last two chapters of the book, especially, by the time I get to those, like I really enjoyed those two chapters. And I and I think it's that lowering of expectations because yeah, that first book, I was kind of expecting the big three presents. By this time, I'm I'm more into Nora's group and and getting into them. And again, I think I think you really can just get by without the first aftermath. Now I had to go audiobook. So every time I think of Temmon in the first audiobook, I think of a really whiny Timmon because that's how Mark Tom. And played the character. He's still to a degree that way. And there is some great banter between him and Sinjir. I'm not being whiny. You're like, oh my God, this is great. He's like, You're being whiny. You're like, oh, he's a classic teen. Uh, and I was enjoying that, the banter between him and Wedge, the nickname and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that lowering of my expectations really allowed me to come into this book and enjoy what I got for what it was. You know, the, the whole if they would have told us from the beginning that the Aftermath books were going to be based on a, a ragtag group of, of you know, bounty hunters, basically, for lack of a better term, because really only one of them's a true bounty hunter, I wouldn't have thought I would have enjoyed this book. And I don't know if the setup of Aftermath has helped. I mean, yeah, I know that that's how the team got together. But honestly, like you said, John Burrell, he, he enters the group very late in the game. And whereas in this book, he's already part of the team. And I really felt like the team functioned. And the, I, I felt like the team's function is really what set the book ahead of my expectations. I wasn't expecting that kind of caring to come from me for these characters. You know, like so far with the first book, it was just really Mr. Bones. He was the one I was really digging on. And now after that, like, I really like John Burrell's character. I like the, the interaction between him and Jazz. But I really like Jazz, Sinjir, and John. Like the 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 trio of the way they would bounce off each other with stuff. Uh, the angles with Masamita was something that that I wasn't expecting as well. Which when that came in, it was it was one of those things that got me thinking. And I think. That's the thing about Aftermath that really startles me the most is that I hope that there is a plan that they gave to Wendig for what they want with the Empire because a lot of what's going on, the Imperial angle is what intrigues me the most about these books because it's not at all what I was expecting. And it almost feels like a five-year window of Legends books being shoehorned into one book. You're just getting like the Imperial of the Week kind of thing without getting the Imperial of the Week. The fact that they gave us so much information about Gallius Rex in this book after making him a big mystery in the last book kind of threw me off. I was like, wait, that was a huge mystery. And I would just, and it happened so quick. It was just kind of like, oh, we were just always supposed to know. And I was like, wait, wasn't there supposed to be a big lead up here? Like this was supposed to be a major event. Isn't this supposed to be a big character? Like, And then when you get to the aspect of Rex, you, you were talking about him being the master tactician. I keep wanting to hope and find out that he's somehow attached to Thrawn. Like he's like uh, some intern for Thrawn or was Thrawn's protege or something because so much about the way he deals with opera is how I expect Thrawn to be with art. Uh, And so I would love to have some kind of a connection there that like maybe uh, Gallius Rax bumped elbows with Thrawn and was just interested in him. And it was like kind of admiring him from afar and kind of, you know, rolled with opera because Palpatine was into opera or something, you know, like I I would love to see a connection there. That brings us to Bantha in the room number three. And that for aftermath was basically
0: the hubbub around the book, the controversies surrounding the book and Chuck Winding on social media, him blasting back and everything. A lot of which, was sort of deflecting of criticism and so forth, and just how that did not work and did not present a good atmosphere around the book. This time, there doesn't seem to have been a whole lot of controversy. There was still an Amazon review campaign sort of against the book, but that seems to be sort of the, the general thing to expect now from new story canon books, uh, story group canon books, but there didn't seem to be a lot of backlash and back and forth and lashing out by Wendig or Wendig supporters, so that controversy wasn't really there. He does, however, seem to have continued a pattern of sort of poking the controversial hornet's nest as was done back in the previous book, which does bear some mentioning here because it really threw Mark for a loop. So in the United States, i got to give you the sociopolitical lesson here of, of the context of this. In the United States, one of the big sociopolitical issues of debate right now is this issue of gender identity, which is basically the idea of what determines someone's gender. Is it, as traditionally has been the case, physiological, biological, anatomical, genetic? Is it basically which of the things that the kid in kindergarten cop called out is in your pants that determines your gender? Or is gender determined more by self-image, self-perception, essentially a psychological or a emotional thing. If someone feels psychologically and emotionally like they are or should be a woman, but they've got as Tim Allen would say, Big Sam and the twins in their pants, does that make a difference? Which is the determining factor? Who decides what your gender is? Is it an accident of birth or is it a, if not a choice, a determination based on uh, like psychological factors it's about self-perception and so forth. It gets sort of referred to sometimes as choosing gender, but I'm not sure that choosing exactly is the right word either. It's more sort of a this is who I feel like, therefore this is what I am um, is the mindset. And amidst that controversy comes more of a push from a political side for various issues from the LGBT community, which sort of conflates with this and gives us this broader sort of in the U.S. at least politically liberal, political left wing push Towards, we must deal with these issues now, we must push for diversity, et etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and we must find ways to sort of make society adjust for people who don't fit traditional molds, whereas you see more of a resistance to that from the conservative right. And part of this is this idea... That gender, being something that is not necessarily just male, female, or rare genetic cases of both, instead, with it being something that is part perception, that there can be more than just male, female, or every once in a while both, that instead... What you have is uh, tons of different gender options. You have cisgender, you have transgender, you have genderqueer, you have gender non-binary, you have agender, and so on and so on and so on. All these different things. At one point, uh, when Facebook back in, I think it was 2014, changed their settings to allow you to put in a custom gender instead of just male or female, the ABC News did a check to see how many custom genders existed in Facebook uh, within the first day or so of that being allowed. And it was something like 30 to 50, depending on if you took the ones that were very similar and combined them together or not. But in this very highly charged debate over gender identity and how you refer to people and so forth, what terminology is correct. There's sort of this realization again that the English language doesn't really have gender neutral pronouns for people. We have he and she and we have it, but when you take the ones that are basically built into the English language right now and try to refer to people, it is very dehumanizing to call an individual. And then they, yeah, you can. that's sort of the way people usually use it these days, is use they to refer to someone who is not considering themselves just male or just female. But they is meant to be plural. It's just kind of shoehorned into somehow trying to be singular when it's not meant to be. The English language needs some type of way of saying it, other than she slash he, or she with S slash H-E. There's of taking pronouns that don't fit and trying to shoehorn them in. There needs to be some new ones. And in the midst of that, over the years, there have been about 15, at least according to Wikipedia, about 15 different ones that have been created to try to make gender neutral pronouns, whether talking Z, um, G, P, THON, all these different, yeah, THON, all these different terms. And... Enter Chuck Windig. Chuck Windig seems to be left of center politically and is very much about pushing a diversity agenda, at least from what it seems. With Aftermath, what he did was he pushed up the number of gay characters in the book, trying to push the idea that gay characters are just like any other characters. They're just human beings, so to speak, just sentience in Star Wars' case. Uh, they're, They're around us, they're part of society, so they should be included as well. And wound up with a situation where he had more gay characters at least referenced in the book than had heterosexual characters or ones that he at least referenced as heterosexual which yes was a little bit over the top from a proportional standpoint to society but i think did a fairly good job of getting those characters in getting them accepted and showing hey these are just human beings this is an aspect of their character it's just a little more pronounced and focused upon in a couple of cases than that one reference to delian moore's back in lords of the sith being a lesbian but these characters just happen to be gay deal with it essentially but that In this politically charged environment, he had to have known he was sort of poking a hornet's nest on the conservative right, people he seems like he would definitely not agree with on issues of gay rights, and you you name it. And he got kind of the response that you would expect. People on the conservative right lashed out against the book because of that. And that's where some of the people defending Windig uh, sort of took up the mantle of saying, "Okay, well, you can't criticize this book because if you're criticizing it, it's not because you didn't like the book or you're criticizing that real thing. Instead, it's because you're a closet homophobe and don't want to say that you are, So you just hate the book because there's gay people in it. So you had that sort of poking of the hornet's nest, which created controversy, which blew up out of proportion. This time, he tries to do another push of diverse characters except this time, I don't think it worked. Last time, I think it worked. I think the controversy around it was to be expected, and that kind of got blew up out of proportion. But I think, yep. you know, people look at Sinjir, they're going to see
1: Sinjir as just a human being, but not this time. Sinjir, he's just funny. I mean, that's I, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm 100% in agreement. I think the first book did a good enough job. It was very subtle. And I think that was my issue with this, was, you know, we've had characters, the prime example is Legends and Huts. You know, Huts were always a character that, that could be one or the other. Uh, but there, you know, we've had other characters that they explained that. And I think that was my issue. Plus, it didn't help that there was one typo in that one interlude where one of the Z's dropped.
0: (laughs) Well, let me me explain what's going on before we pick it apart. So basically what he does is he includes a gender neutral character, whether transgender, agender, whatever, a character who doesn't recognize themselves or identify themselves as male or female. And he inserts this character into one interlude around page 105 or so aboard the Annihilator it's this pirate character named Elioti Marakavania, uh, who serves with other pirates like uh, Venthar of the Sarkan of Egg Brood Zenzin or Zenzin Zinar or whatever. It's it's. You know, there's a a hyphen in the middle of the name. But I don't know if the hyphen's meant to be there or not because it's a very alien-sounding name. And what he does is he uses one of those many, many, many sets of gender-neutral pronouns that people have tried to create and insert into the English language that have never caught on, which is Uh, It's G, Jim, Jer, Jerse, Jimself are the different versions of that depending on how you're using it within a sentence. uh, Possessive, reflexive, normative, whatever or nominative. See, I'm getting my terminology, it's been a long time since I've taken another language. But basically, in using it here, he's trying to include this transgender or gender neutral character in here, just like he did with the gay characters back in Aftermath, which is, hey, this is just another character, look, she's a pirate, or she, excuse me, is a pirate, said she, because at one point it says her, uh, which is what Mark was referencing there. But Elioti is a pirate, and hey, this character is just another person who just happens to be gender neutral, I'm just gonna use those pronouns. The problem, I think, is that it backfired because it wasn't something people were familiar with. I mean, I know that, it, that you had a, a very strong reaction of what the hell is going on. It seems as though, to me, If this was about creating diversity, adding this character in and saying, hey, this character is just like any other character, um, should be thought of as just sort of, hey, people who use gender neutral pronouns are just part of society, deal with it, Um, this is a reflection of life, doesn't work because one, the character is only in this one interlude. Two, the character, the, the use of the pronouns is never really explained for people who haven't seen them before. Three, the character is around other characters like Vinthar the Sarkhan of Eggbrood Shazinizar, or whatever, uh, which is a very alien-sounding name, and... Most of the audience will never have heard of these gender-neutral pronouns. And when you are reading a sci-fi fantasy book, you've got alien names over here, you've got an interlude that sort of narrows it down to just this one snapshot of the character, and you're seeing these pronouns used with only one character in the entire book, and you've never heard of these before, I think our natural assumption is to assume, oh, this is science fiction. This term that she's using, or I keep saying she that she, um, that she is using, I've never seen it before, so it must be something specific to this character's race or culture. It is something that defines Eliodi as alien to the reader, even if the character is supposed to be human. because Oh, well, this is like, you know, it's a, it's a Corellian, and the Corellians, uh, they talk that way, so this character is, is a Corellian, sure! Or, in this case, is from whatever planet they use these pronouns instead of him or her, okay? I think that the end result is that what they've managed to do is alienate the audience from this character that is meant to be a character for inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. And instead, it creates a bigger wall between the audience and the character than he intended. That said... While I think that for the general audience, this inclusiveness did not work because it just confused people, I think that we have to think about those Star Wars readers who do consider themselves gender neutral, who identify not as male or female or just regular male or female, but it is some combination thereof, some derivation thereof, or something separate thereof, that someone who uses these pronouns to think of themselves would have read this and thought, finally, there's someone like me in a Star Wars book. And that, the impact of that, I think, cannot be overestimated. Because that is huge. Huge. Because everyone wants to see themselves in their favorite saga in some way or the other. And just like gay Star Wars fans could see themselves more, hopefully, through characters like Senjir back in Aftermath, transgender or gender-neutral individuals could see themselves, I think, with Elioti here. So, I don't know. I I don't think it worked for most audience members. I think it did what he wanted it to do for some. And I wonder if the jarringness and how it didn't work for many audience members because of not being familiar with the terminology, I wonder if that is something that, even if that's the majority of readers, doesn't really matter if it managed the goal of actually causing someone who has never seen themselves reflected in a Star Wars book to see that for the first time. In any event, that's the one instance where we saw at least a little bit of controversy coming out of the book, but it doesn't seem to have blown up into a Chuck Windig back-and-forth flame war hate fest kind of thing, so that third bantha in the room doesn't seem to have applied as much. The pushing diversity does, but not really the flaming and such that came after it, which is positive.
1: Yeah. Once I realized what was going on, I was just like, well, all we needed was like a little description. Cause I was, I was talking with other uh, beyonders on our page and one of them was like, well, it's a, it's a a transsexual character. I'm like, well, nothing about this character is described as transsexual. I mean, you know, and and in fact, nothing about this character is even gender neutral. I mean, aside from that word being used uh, and and I I admit I had no clue that that was a real world term. And when I looked it up, you know, I, I found a very snarky definition talking about how a very limited group of people are trying to push this on the rest of the world and that it's never going to happen. So I was like, yeah, it's like fetch. This is never going to happen. But, you know, here I'm looking at a list of these and you've got going back to 1975. Iverson was one 1975. Iverson was the word they used, which. So in, in a term of I is laughing, I called M airy eyes gleam. That is airs. And I likes self. Now, if somebody talks to you in a sentence like that, you're going to be like, what the hell are you talking about? Here's the next one. Humanist. Hugh is laughing. I called Hume. Hugh's eyes gleam. That is Hughes. Hugh likes Hume's self. Then we get G, J E E. Okay, this is good. I mean, I'm just going to go down these because to me, there's a level of ridiculousness here that we have so many terms. Well,
0: could you argue, though, that it's not so much ridiculous that we need a term so much as it's ridiculous that there are so many of them, which is a testament to how none of them have really caught on. And I wonder, part of me wonders if now is when we're going to see something finally start to catch on because the issue is so front and center in a lot of political discussions now. I mean, even the whole target bathrooms thing is related back to the transgender transgenderism and sexual identity and, and gender identity and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, a lot of these, I'm like, really? If I was reading a book and saw these, are like, Thawne. Yeah. If I was reading a book and I saw Thawne used as a replacement for he or she, I wouldn't know what the hell they were talking about. But I don't I don't think that's so much a, a ridiculous thing in terms of, of needing it, but nothing has ever caught on, it seems, um, which surprises me, because the English language had taken, I mean, bruh has caught on, you know I mean? <laughs> slang gets put into the dictionary now, and yet yeah. this hasn't really caught on. So it it, it threw off readers. So, so you said that there's not really a way that the character was described as transgender. One, maybe that's part of the point, which is sort of a, maybe this person doesn't, maybe they don't need to define a person like that. If someone is a gay a character. They don't need to necessarily overtly say it. It just might come up somewhere in their characterization and description and interactions with people. But do you think there was a way that he could have done this to include this character without using the pronouns? Because that's what I'm racking my brain about. Like, how do you write a third person book, include a character, gender neutral, not using he, she, they, that sort of thing, without using those pronouns, do you just constantly refer to the character by the first
1: name or something? I would almost think, yeah. I mean, well, then I guess it comes down to what are they trying to say here? I mean, are they trying to say that this is a a transsexual character? Or, you know, what does gender neutral mean to this alien? You know, I mean, is it just an an alien species that's born? I mean, isn't that like asexual or something? I mean, granted, there's a lot about this that I don't understand. I mean, I use the term political correctness to, to, you know, because to me, having all these different names for something, that seems like political correctness. You know, nay, pet, Per spike of thon V X X Yo Z Z Zer Zem Mir. Then we get to the Zahi. And I was just like, wow, that seems a little ridiculous. But when I got there, I I, I was listening to it in the audiobook. Granted, the first five times, I didn't even have an issue with this. And it was, it was the last time I was going through it. And of course, you get those names like like you were saying, uh, sous or whatever. And then you get Thompson using the Z all the time. I literally thought Thompson was having a stroke. And then of course there is the one her. So I'm like, I opened up the book to figure out what the hell is going on in this chapter. And I just got more and more confused. I felt like, you know, if if there was something about this character that we were supposed to know, like, Hey, he is a gender neutral character then that I felt like that should have been expressed using the word "zahi" to tell me a real world reader that this is a gender neutral. That wasn't enough. I was so completely confused. I had no idea what was going on. And I think that was the thing that really threw me off. And then it became like, well, you know, you went so slick with it that it it got me thinking. And I just literally, my kids just getting into uh, uh, preschool and one of my sister's elementary school friends was down there and is an advisor at the school. And when she was a little girl, her name was, well, I'm not going to say her name, but she goes now by the initials DJ right? And so now we're introduced to this guy named DJ and I'm just like, hey that's, what's her name that my sister grew up with? And she's a complete dude now. And I mean, I don't know if she's had any surgery or anything like that, but I'm not about to ask. But it, it got me thinking about that, you know, of like, what was this character supposed to be? Was this like the DJ, you know, in my in my life where it was somebody that I knew and I cared about that that made the transition and is functioning as a guy looks like a guy. You know, I mean, when she was a younger girl She was always kind of aloof. You always felt like there was something just kind of off about her. And it wasn't until she realized, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong sexuality. Then everything kind of clicked into place for it. My sister also had friends that were gay. So I don't have an issue with, with people's lifestyles. It was just the way it was thrown out. And I was like, the way I was finding it out. I'm like, and then when people are like, no, this is a real world term. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like this? Yeah. And then I start looking it up and I'm like, yeah, there really needs to be one term, not 15 or more going back to 1975. It's like, pick one and use it, you know, own it, you know, like that's, that's the thing that really threw me
0: off. Yeah. So I think it's more of a, the, the fact that it didn't work was more sort of a reflection of society than it necessarily is on Windig and what he was trying to do here. I think if, if the terminology was more commonly accepted, I think that. That Windig's efforts here wouldn't have fallen flat for so many people, but suffice it to say, that's the third bantha in the room. The controversy was relatively minimal. This was really the only controversy point, and uh, it does make for an interesting point of sort of social commentary on where we are as English speakers in relation to this, and and perhaps. Well, maybe the fact that we don't have that type of pronoun and haven't been able to settle on one for decades and didn't even try in the years before that uh i don't know maybe that's exactly why we need chuck wendig and people like him pushing this kind of diversity in the books just maybe in a way that's clearer to the readers but but i guess that's the libertarian to me coming out of the people who think that people who are out there who are listening who think i'm like far far conservative are like what right now you agree with something socially with this? But no, I mean, I'm, I I tend to be very much a live and let live. I don't care what your lifestyle choice is. And if you have a, a preferred way you want to be referred to, okay. But just make sure that I know it so that I, I'm not... Saying it wrong. Um, So that's, 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 Tease care of the banthus in the room. I know that's a lot of stuff to get into. It gets kind of a deeper political, uh, social political topic than we usually try to get into. But I think that bared some mentioning because that did become one of the points of discussion we were seeing most often about the book, less about the story, more about that. It was drawing attention away from it. So get it out of the way so we can focus on the story like the first time. And I would add before we move on to anything else, I would be interested in hearing from anyone in the audience Uh, of this show, who is transgender, considers themselves gender neutral, whatever, uh, among the non-binary gender descriptions on how they felt about seeing this character in the book and the use of the pronoun And the the, the issue itself, Um, though, that's probably going to be one because of the charge nature of discussion on that particular topic. I would say let us know if you do send us an email about it, whether it's okay to be read on air uh, in one of our feedback episodes or not, because we'd like to hear your opinion and like to hear your thoughts. But if you're not comfortable with that going out to the full audience, you know, it'd be a good thing to know. So. Um, let's get into one of the things that that is story-related now, a deeper story-related, that to me was kind of a shock. And and we can sort of focus here on events and characters, as we did with Bloodlines, as we kind of bounce around the book. But Gallius Rex, you talked about kind of this guy and, and hoping that it connects to Thrawn and the whole thing about him with the opera versus the art. He really kind of feels like he's a latter-day Thrawn I really kind of hope that he and Thrawn never have any interaction and that Thrawn is somehow dead by the time that these books come around because we don't want two master chess masters out there basically doing the same kind of things in the books. He's now taken the place of Thrawn in this era in terms of machinations. We don't need both. It's It's a little over the top with this character, but... What surprised me, as intriguing as he is with his unusual background, as intriguing as it was to meet him in the prologue as a young man, and then see him in the epilogue as a young man, and in the middle seeing him as the grown man now manipulating the Empire and so forth, as interesting as it was... I couldn't help but be taken aback by the fact that this was a mystery flushed down the toilet. Because the entirety of Aftermath, the first book, when mentioning the Fleet Admiral at all, never gave his name, made him very mysterious and in the background as if nobody knew, and not even Sloane would refer to the Fleet Admiral beyond pronouns or that term, so you never got a, a sense of his identity at all. So you expect that if that's a big mystery to be solved, that mystery will continue and maybe be solved In life debt. And instead, they treat it as though it was never a mystery in the first place. That all of a sudden, just in life debt, oh, here's his name. Here's what he's doing. Oh, wait, there was a mystery? <laughs> no, there wasn't. Nothing to see here. It seems like one of the big points of, of drawing people into this book of, ooh, I want to know more about the Fleet Admiral, it gets answered because we do learn more about him, but in a very clumsy way that felt like any of the buildup and aftermath was utterly squandered for the Fleet Admiral. Am I wrong in that? Did I miss something? And somehow this when they first mentioned him in here as the Fleet Admiral, that was supposed to be that oh, revelation moment because it sure felt pretty pedestrian and basic, to me, the way you refer to as if the mystery had never existed.
1: Yeah, no, that felt like a lost ball, like, like you're waiting for the balloon to get completely filled up and somebody let go of the bottom and just... <laughs> Way up into there. way that was fun. Yeah, the the Rex angle. That's that that aspect that I was hoping that Story Group has given Chuck an idea of where they want the Empire to go because Gallius Rex, he's an odd character. Like I feel like at times he's supposed to play the role Thrawn is playing. That's why I kind of hope like he's an intern of Thrawn's at some point. So like there's a little connection there. But yeah, I, I want to know more about this guy. Windig's done a good job of keeping that mystery alive, but the revealing of his name was a huge letdown. Like, I was expecting there to be like a light or like a, oh. This is Saw Gerrera kind of thing. Like, oh, Gallius Rex. Oh, yeah, that one throwaway character from the Clone Wars. No, no, this is just somebody completely new. No, I was completely lost by that. And in creating his background, it does
0: seem there is some discrepancy here that some of the details of his background got mixed up by Windig. But I think we can easily write it off as, well, he's a master of subterfuge, so maybe he tweaked his own records so that it doesn't match him really. But... Basically, his age in official imperial records would put his birth at 36 BBY because he joined the uh, NIA at age 20, which was 20 years before life debt, according to the actual text in Life Debt. But that would mean that he was 10 years old when he stowed away on the imperialis that we see in the prologue. But when the narration is actually from Gallius' own perspective— Uh, a third person limited to his perspective. He notes having heard real music for the first time while stowing away aboard the Imperialis after not hearing that music for, quote, the first 12 years of his life. So there is a two year discrepancy in when he was born based on which part of the book you're reading, which did kind of throw me. But I'm hoping that that's just a matter of, well, this is just the subterfuge of the character. But it seems as though while the character is interesting and I like the machinations, it's kind of cool to see things that we saw the seeds being planted for back in Lost Stars like the the Imperials kind of going into hiding and such, uh, seeing sort of the earlier part of that. Uh, I I like to see those types of things playing out here and. I think it's kind of cool that this is a guy who is not telling the truth to everyone. He's setting up sort of his own agenda on Jakku, and he's sort of manipulating Sloane into things like he was kind of before, and in doing so winds up with Sloane being completely caught off guard by the assassination attempt that's not a full-scale invasion. As interesting as all that is, there are just clumsy little things about the way that the character was introduced to us and the way his background was introduced that makes me wonder, like you were saying, how much of a plan there was for this character uh, Mm -hmm. in these books. how much of it was planned ahead of time and how much was just kind of flying by the seat of his pants when it came time to write the second book.
1: Yeah, mysterious fleet admiral. Like, all of a sudden, by the end of this book, he's the emperor. They're calling him Emperor Rax, and it's like, well... How does nobody knew his name before, and all of a sudden everyone's okay with it? And an emperor like, where are we going with this? Like, we know there's no emperor of the first order; it's a supreme leader. What the hell is going on? Like, I'm more confused. And it like it seemed like everything was building up. Like the whole fleet in the you know the hidden fleets, like that felt like the Katana Fleet and the Black Fleet crisis. You know, like oh, this is where they're going to get all their ships. But I'm led now to the impression that everything's building up to the Battle of Jakku, where the Empire is going to lose. Everything, So I'm now under the impression Gallius Rax is going to lose spectacularly here on Jakku and he's going to lose everything. And then what we see in bloodlines is going to be the second startup of this group, maybe, or what's left of this group building up again with the Amaxin warriors? Like, that aspect I'm totally confused. I have no idea what the hell is going on. And I'm, right now, like in the story-wise, where it's set I'm really interested in what's going on with these Imperials. This is the Empire I know. The First Order and, and the Amaxine warriors from Bloodlines, I have no idea what those guys are, what they're trying to do, aside from bring order back to the galaxy. From the Imperial side, I have no clue what their motivations are, you know? So I'm like, are these groups going to be tied together somehow? Like, that that's really messing with me. And it took the reference to Han and Leia being married on Endor for me to realize how close to Endor this book takes place. Because I keep wanting to move it out, like, 10 to 15 years from uh, episode six. It's, what, like, months after or within the year of? Yeah, it's within that first
0: year because the Battle of Jakku is one year after. And we're leading up to the Battle of Jakku in this book.
1: Yeah, Um, we just Leia finds out that it's a boy. I mean, so that was, you know, those things like brought me back to, okay, this is where it's set. But knowing where it was set really messed with my mind with where, you know, it was going to evolve into the First Order and how it was going to evolve. Because I'm right now, I'm having a really hard time seeing that evolution. The only thing I could see is like a phoenix. Like these guys are going to get wiped out and the First Order is going to be what comes from the ashes of the ashes of the ashes
0: so Gallius Rax, interesting character, oddly handled, very Thrawn-esque, kind of like what if Thrawn was a human. All right. Other characters, though, at least on the Imperial side, I think that the way that Ray Sloan was handled here works well. And I think it's something that helps that we have seen her in so many previous stories. I mean, she was even in the Kanan comic book. So... To see Ray Sloan back and have her be the one who's like, "Ah, oh, I'm not sure I trust this guy. She's sort of the one that's loyal to the Empire and its ideals for what it's worth, but at the same time isn't sure that this guy is. So she's looking into his background, she's seeing herself being manipulated, and in some cases can't really do anything about it. She's making the best out of that situation, and by the end is essentially going to try to expose him or otherwise thwart some of his machinations. I think that worked well. I think that Ray Sloan is one of the only characters across both Aftermath and Life Debt, that I really like her portrayal and how we're seeing her develop in her leadership role for the Empire.
1: The way to describe her is the opposite of Leia for the Empire. Like, Leia is... Mm -hmm. Public, what she is for the Empire—that really elevated her in my eyes as well. Like, I love the fact that she was showing up across all the mediums. I think we need more characters like that. But having her be a prominent Imperial character, I think that was a brilliant move. Yeah, she's sort of
0: like the uh, the the spokesperson in a sense. You know, she's the the one that they look at, but she's just kind of a figurehead because Gallius Rax is kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. Which I guess, since you referenced Leia, brings us a little bit into being able to deal with sort of how the big three are handled. Luke, in this case, is gone. It's interesting that uh, in Aftermath and Life Debt and Bloodline, I mean, Luke is already off doing his own thing. So we don't really get a chance to see him interacting in this era much. But when it comes to Leia and Han, you talk about how Leia kind of seemed like she was the one in distress, even though it was Han that was the one in danger. I felt like Leia in this, she's very true to the Leia from the films. And we can sort of see why she winds up in the mentality that she's in by the time of Bloodline. Although it strikes me as odd how much time passes between this and Bloodline, because even here, she is incredibly frustrated with the decisions being made by the new government. It's the old uh, thinking about war and whatnot. Again, going back to quote Hamilton, as I think I did last time around, it's the whole, you know, winning was easy. Ruling or leading is harder or governing is harder because here she is, she thinks she knows what the right thing to do is, the morally right thing, the thing they would have done if they were still the Rebel Alliance, but now Mon Mothma is constrained by all these political concerns and isn't willing to do so. And they're holding meetings without her because they know that she would be dissenting. She's basically, without swearing, sort of cussing out Mon Mothma and stalking away at one point in this book, and it's sort of the yes- I can see why she would feel like eventually screw it. I need to start the resistance if they're not going to deal with this problem. Like they've not dealt with so many other problems before. But at the same time, I'm thinking, is she really going to go through this kind of crap? This constant being rubbed the wrong way and rubbing other people the wrong way and this type of frustration for decades. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, I, I mean, we got to remember this is that the Force Awakens is 30 years after this is in that first year after Return of the Jedi and. It's 24 years between here and or 24 to 23 uh, between here and uh, Bloodline. So for over 20 years, she's going to put up with this crap and stay a part of this system. While I, I, I could see Leia doing that because of her need to try to guide things in the right direction and her need to be involved. There's a part of it that sits back and says th- this has to calm down at some point. And then start to rub her the wrong way again later. Because otherwise, any rational human being is gonna get sick of it or burn out or something. I like to see the conflict, but this early?
1: Yeah, yeah. That was that was what threw me off. Was the this early aspect. You had the this early with her, with them getting married. I was really floored that they got married while still on Endor. You know, I'm like, wow, like that Do you think? Okay,
0: so All right. So in Hamlet, there's this great line of uh, how the funeral baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage table. The idea of, well, there was a funeral where they had food and then they just kept it in the leftovers worth of marriage because they got married so soon after the funeral. I'm wondering, based on that fan theory about seeing the Imperial helmets during the celebration at the end of Jedi and the, the thought that maybe they just killed and ate the Imperials. I'm wondering, was the wedding feast in this case, was it the Imperial bodies did coldly furnish forth the marriage table? This time, <laughs> yeah. Well, finger sandwiches were actually finger sandwiches.
1: Oh, don't want the crab cake. Oh, well, and then you have the aspect oh, of his commission. I'm like, uh, there were all these little things that I wasn't expecting to happen a year after the year of uh, Endor. You know, there was like, wow, whoa, gotta rack my head on this. Chewie's been lost already. Like, oh man, you know, like Bloodline comes along and you're like, wait where's the Falcon? Like there's a lot of things that are happening that aren't being really flat out told. And I'm like, come on, man. I don't want to have to infer this information. Just give it to me, lay it on me, you know, lay it on thick. It was, it was one of those things too, that like when Yvonne, uh, Veriline shows up, she's the same lady that ends up becoming the new queen of Alderaan in the Leia comics. And I was thinking about that, but it took me, about my fifth time to actually realize that this book was set before the Leia comic. I was just like, Oh, that's wait, wait, why. it's not, it's not. Then how come they it's never play the comic is set right after a new hope. This is set
0: right after, well, within months after Jedi.
1: Are you kidding me? So once again, we have all these Alderon references and we even have the lady who's the Wow. So did I miss something fundamental in the end of that comic? Because in this, she's described as a New Republic pilot. They never mention her being the takeover princess. In fact, she's calling Leia princess. Well, it seems what-
0: like what they did here was they've made it sort of a, a an elected position or something. So Evan just isn't that anymore. So now she's flying as a pilot again. At least that's what I gleaned, but it's only very superficially touched on at all. Which, which begs the question, well, is it better to include her and have that link back to the Princess Leia stuff? Uh, or is it better to just have it be a different pilot because otherwise you need to do more explaining? I, I like seeing her back, but I th- yeah, I think that they needed a little bit more detail to...
1: What's that 23-year thing? Like, really, for 23 years, we're going to continue on this don't call me princess, I'm not a princess. Like, just name somebody else! She's the princess, not me! Cut it out. Like, they even mentioned the fact that Alderaan still needs a senator. It's like, like they got to figure out what they're doing with Alderaan and Quick, because we're one year out, and they're still talking about things they're talking about 23 years from now? Come on. <laughs> Which gives us, I guess, kind of rounding out
0: Leia, of course, the other side of that coin is Han. And I think Han was characterized very well in this book. I think this was a book where when it comes to established characters outside of those introduced in Aftermath, Han was the one that shined. Because we got to see him back in that interlude in Aftermath. And a lot of fans said that's the book we would rather have seen than what Aftermath was. We wanted to see the Han Chewie Kashyyyk thing, which is basically what this turns into. The fact that Han won't give up. The fact that Han is carrying around this guilt. And the fact that even as Leia understands him, it's this whole, I can't go start a family and really be there for my son if I have this other obligation still hanging over my head. I have to do right by Chewy. Before I can do right by my family. And I mean, it's really, and in that sense, you know, I'd say, well, oh, that's very irresponsible. I liken it less to someone who's doing something for a friend and waiting to come back to his family in that sense, so much as maybe someone who's more like has made a, a, has an oath of duty to like the military. And I must finish serving my country before I can go home and truly serve my own. In that sense, I think that the emotional weight for Han works well. And the fact that by the end of this, Han is having to kind of say goodbye to Chewie so that Chewie can continue the work on Kashyyyk and Han can go off and help Leia back on Chandrilla with everything that's going on is a profound moment. And it makes me wonder if this is the moment where they part ways so that Chewie is still elsewhere, it seems, during Bloodline when Han is doing the racing circuit stuff. But Han, the fact that Han doesn't want help Once he's found, at first he doesn't want help, and basically I think it's Nora has to find a way to basically suggest that they give him help without him having to ask for it in order for him to accept it, kind of getting around his pride. Han is masterfully handled, it seems to me, in this book. This is the Han that I wish we would have seen in some of those later, we're going to make them, accessible Star Wars books um, that we got back with legends like Honor Among Thieves He's captured incredibly well here, and it works with sort of the deeper levels of the character, not just capturing his manner of speaking and his, you know, his recklessness at
1: times, but really capturing the deeper side of the character. Yeah, I really like there's one part where he talks about how Chewie saved him. You know, he's like, I saved Chewie, but in reality, he saved me. You know, that, that Han was always that rogue. The, the angle of the pirate kept coming up, too, you know, of, of him once being a pirate and what that means. And, and now he's no longer a general. I always have liked that angle of Han. But again, I, it's just weird that this is all happening so fast. Like, this is stuff I would expect to do happen five years after, not, not so soon. Uh, so that was an angle that I... I think that's my biggest issue when it comes to the new canon stuff is the direction the big three are going in. And of course, because they're in the movies, they're still keeping the the middle story dark. And so yet they're, they're trying to find ways to infuse them and yet not tell their story. And I feel like I'm missing out. Like there's details that I should know about. But they're not going to give us those details because only Story Group has those details. And until we get a plot in this movie five years down the road, well, we got to sit on that. And I'm like, I want to know. There's a good story here, I feel. And yet when I'm piecing together, I'm feeling like there's not enough information to see the good story. And I'm worried. I have faith. It's just early in the process. And there's not many pieces laid out. And I'm having a hard time seeing the full picture. You know, I mean, I think that's the, the issue I have the most. But this is again one of those stories like Bloodline, where the the background, the secondary cast, really gets a lot of the moments to shine. You know, there are moments where uh, Jazz Amari does these multiple betrayals with her bounty hunter background. And John Burrell is the perfect foil for that because each time he really believes it's gonna happen, he takes it as a personal aside. You know, they've got a relationship going on. So it works in that regard. And their relationship is a twisted one. And which which works in great with with Sinjir because you know, Sinjir, he's the guy, he's the gay guy, he has no interest in the women, and yet he likes jazz he, he's just got a genuine affection for her you know she's his bro uh and so he's like he always wants to be there for her and yet here's john burrell who he doesn't really care for john doesn't really care for him so there's this great interactions between these three characters that really mm-hmm. cracked me up and then you also have the angle of like sinjir with uh snap you know the the whole teenage angst and and, and sinjir calling him on it 24 7 sinjir being the drunk like There were some great personality moments about these guys that I would love to see this group, the bounty hunting group show up in other stories, even if they're not used much, you know, like just there's a throwaway line where they're going on a mission or something. Just have them come in, do a quick little line. Like they've got a wrath squadron feel so far where there's a core group and they're funny and I get a kick out of reading about their adventures. And I think that's really
0: the key here. I mean, this group, if they don't work, this book doesn't work, right? If these characters from Aftermath, that at the time we were like, why are we meeting these characters? Who are these people? Really? Really? Timon t- is, that- is somehow able to pull Vault onto a ship and hang on with one arm and throw somebody out. of at- What? And just all the things that kind of got us about those characters before a- a- that-, that kept people from really getting into them. Unless they were able to put a lot of preconceptions and some odd things happening in the book aside and just look at the book as just, hey, it's a story. Judge it by its own merits. I think people were kind of wary of, you know, what are we going to see the next time we see these characters? Are they going to work? And I think for the most part, they work really well here. They build on the characterizations we got before. There's witty banter and so forth. They're sort of true to themselves. And we get some emotionally distressing moments for many of them. That said, it's interesting that you bring up the Jas Jom, Sinjir thing. Because first off, Sinjir is my favorite character in this book. Sinjir is awesome. Sinjir is a tortured soul. He's, He's bound by his past, wants to get away from it, but so often is called upon to use those skills from his past because they need it. He's going through this thing where he's not sure about his relationship to Condor Kill, which is this slicer, uh, a male slicer, because this is a gay character, but it's never really something that they slam home or anything like that. It's just a part of the character, which is great the way they characterized it, that basically uh, he's kind of the one not quite sure of who he is or where he fits. There's a great moment where they're in a uh, a bar, basically, and somebody comes up and is harassing them on Chandrilla, and... It's. I think it's a key thing with Sinjir and an important thing societally and just from the standpoint of the fact that it's 2016 that the people harassing them don't care that they're a gay couple. They care this guy's a former imperial. This isn't about what you are description-wise in terms of your nature. This is about what you have done. This is about the choices that you made and which side you were on. So is great. I love the fact that he's so protective of Jazz. The fact that he kind of threatens Jom at different points, but then still is willing to work with Jom uh, when it comes down to and Jom's lost the eye and everything. And means like, I think that kind of stuff, that's all really good Sinjir stuff. And I like the interaction he has with Jom and that he has with Jazz. With Jas and Jom and their relationship, the fact that it sort of became a... I hate you. 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 I want you. I want you. And then, you know, close the door and don't let anybody in because you're hearing the thing squeaking kind of thing going on. That whole thing, I think it works in terms of playing up the should she get attached or not so she can be tortured by that. Eventually, the idea of, well, do they have this respect for each other now? What happens when she wants to leave? Is he going to be willing to let go? How is he feeling about this versus how she's feeling about this, et cetera, et cetera. But it feels as though that is almost the only aspect of characterization that Jas and Jom get in the book is in relation to each other and that relationship, uh, if you want to call it that, that uh, colleagues or crewmates with benefits kind of thing that's going on. Moreover, Jas seems like she was characterized much more clearly in Aftermath than here and that it wasn't all about the man in her life, Um, whereas in this case, She doesn't get played up much characterization wise at all beyond that. And Jom, I don't feel like Jom has earned his place in this group yet. Because as much as Jom is part of the group and has these interactions, to me, he always felt like the outsider of the group, because in Aftermath, he wasn't part of the group! In Aftermath, he's this spec forces guy, the rest of his team gets killed, and he winds up surviving and helping in the final battle completely away from everybody else, and when all is said and done, because he's a survivor, yeah, we'll add you to the team. Jom has no team dynamic with this team from Aftermath. So by the time we get to this book, he's just accepted as part of the group, and it's a jarring thing from the reader because we never see him transition into the group. Um, and as such, we don't know exactly what his previous connections and way of dealing with the other members of this group are to see that grow here. It's like all the other characters are on like their second step of story evolution. And John is still on his
1: first step and it makes him feel odd. Did you no, feel no. that way about them? John is John is the odd one. See, I think jazz still had enough about her, her aunt Sugi and the, and the debts, Uh, and all that weighing on her that I do agree she took more of a side seat than she did in the first book but I still think like she had more of the characterization but yeah it's Jom that really he's just the he's there to be the boyfriend Uh, and like everything for him uh, all hinges around that like even when when Sin's telling him you know you better not hurt her and he's like well come on let's be realistic here I'm the one who's gonna get hurt like you know Jom is completely out of his element and I think that that was specific I think I think he was the guy that just kind of I think he fell for the bounty hunter and i think that the whole there was an interest in the group that brought him in there and kept him in there and his jovialness is what slowly you know bringing him into the fold making him part of the family because you do kind of get a feeling at the end that these guys are a family You know, that they're willing to do whatever they need to for each other. And I like that because there's even a moment where, you know, I talked about some of the legends, you know, elements to this that it felt like, you know, there were like homages to it. When Nora leaves the New Republic, it felt just like when the rogues left in spite of Boris Feli. You know, it was just like, okay, well, we're just going to go above you then. we're going to go this route. So. I don't know. Like, I, I do agree. John definitely is the weak link. I think, though, that by having him already part of the team, it's one of those unspoken things of, you know, well, he's done a couple missions now. He's He's kind of fitting in, but... Like the Zahir, it's one of those things where we're just supposed to infer it. You know, we're just supposed to have that information and kind of roll with it. I
0: mentioned Nora leaving. Um, I think the 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 Wexleys are played well here. I think the 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 motherly concern and the guilt over being gone for so long and not being connected to Tim and so much back in aftermath worked on a human angle. Now we've got this other human angle, which is the whole holy crap, Brenton's alive thing. I think that Nora played fine. In the first part of the book, and so did Timon I didn't really feel like their characters were really pushing development very much, and just kind of—I mean, they were there. They were kind of where they were before, and it's good to see them starting to sort of, you know, interact a little bit more in a positive way. Um, to see Nora start to have a thing for which I was like, okay, you know, well, you know, this is this is a post Return of the Jedi book. We got to figure we're going to start seeing people maybe so- pairing off like we had back in the X Wing stuff. But to to have Brenton wind up being one of the prisoners and him being pulled out, and they're like, holy crap, it's Brenton. One caused me to sit back and be like, "Holy crap!" Because it's I. My reaction was very much like it would be like I was like watching a TV show, I guess, as opposed to being there on scene. On scene, I know it's the it's the oh my god, he's alive, he's alive kind of thing. Whereas I'm sitting back there saying. He's alive. Oh, crap. Wedge, you are screwed. You know, that kind of thing. Like, oh, Nora, you're
1: cheating heart kind of thing. See, um, I, I was more like, oh, my God, this makes her Ayala. She's now Ayella with Wedge. Basically, like, yeah. That was where well, I was going. <laughs> so so there's
0: that angle to it, which interestingly, they don't play up as – I mean, they play that in a very human way. She, she tries to go back to the life that she knew. And she avoids Wedge for a while, then sees Wedge, and there's this connection, and she's trying to deny it kind of thing. I think that was very human. And the awkwardness between Brenton and Nora that then has an awkwardness between Brenton and Timon, where Timon is also being affected by his parents' awkwardness and just getting more angry about something he can't really control, I think that is incredibly human. It's, it's a very much like— You know, you've got a family where the parents are heading towards divorce. The kids can sense the tension, don't understand it. And by being an adolescent or even younger, this child is going to think that they're the cause of it or they're going to find someone to blame. And in this case, he blames his mother, not his father at all. And then, of course, it turns out that Brenton has been programmed and becomes this character who basically turns on the New Republic without meaning to and winds up escaping with Sloan. I think the only thing that really didn't work in that family dynamic was the fact that we really didn't get to know Brenton. So when Brenton is like, I can't believe what I just did, I need to get out of here, help me find the ones that did this to me, I will go with you, Ray Sloan." kind of stuff at the end, I'm like, yeah, as a character, that's what I would expect him to do in a book. But I never felt like there was an emotional kick from the character or felt like he had emotionally earned that point in his story progression because Brenton always felt like he was more a character that was very two-dimensional and he was there for the other characters to play off of and react to without ever really being a full-fledged character himself.
1: Which works, though, for Sloane, because that's kind of what I felt like was, it was like, oh, oh, how convenient that there he is. Like, you need, you're you looking for just someone like that to help you come after Regalius. Like, I, I yeah, I, I felt like him showing up was more to serve her than it was to serve him, although it works for both, but. Yeah, I, I feel what you're laying down there. I guess, so we've talked
0: about big three. We've, ta- well, we've talked about the three Banthas in the room. we talked about the big three in this book. We've talked about the Imperials. We've talked about the main group of characters. So I guess story threads here. To me, I like the way that things worked in the end of the book as far as Gallius Rax's plan. I mm-hmm. think the fact that he's building up to a major battle is a big step it's an important step in terms of the story because we know about the Battle of Jakku. That's gotta happen sooner or later. But I'm glad that the attack on Chandrilla wasn't a full fledged military attack. It wasn't like an invasion or something. It was something more insidious. Something like what might have come from Thrawn or might have come from Darth Sidious, where you have this sort of, we are turning your own people against you. Are you willing to kill them to save your people? Are you willing to ever trust them again? You're turning this day of celebration for freeing this these people into basically um, a tragedy, a, a terrorist attack. And given the fact that we are recording this on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, it makes it particularly poignant to think in terms of terrorism affecting a fledgling democracy trying to celebrate what's good about what they've done recently. I like it, but again, that's the fact that I'm a very politically oriented guy, social studies guy. That's what I teach. You know, it's, it's my lifestyle. Uh, I identify as a social studies guy. Um, so that said, I wonder if this would have worked as well for most readers. Like, this is the second time we've gotten a book from Windig in this era where there really isn't a massive space battle climax kind of thing. Because presumably that's going to be coming with the Battle of Jakku. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that it turned out to be this assassination plot kind of thing worked great. But do you think it, it was as well received broadly? Like were people expecting there to be some bigger, more bombastic space battle or something and that that was kind of a letdown? I can see how some might think that way, but I, I didn't hear anything like that.
1: No, I, I think the first ast- aftermath had our expectations so low that, that- – That there was nowhere to go but up, you know? I mean, I I did kind of wonder if the assassination attempt was the injury Mon Mothma had suffered. But then then again, that would be, what, 24 years of her suffering from a blaster wound? That doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense, which gets me to that angle of, you know, some of these things line up. Until we put the years in between the stories into perspective. And it's kind of like, wow, somebody had really thought this stuff together. And then somebody assigned dates to things. You know, like Ray being on Jakku makes sense, except for when we throw the date in here and then we find out that so and so is way older. So that won't that won't work now. And I'm just kind of like, wow, things line up until I put them in the dates. And now I'm like, well, this doesn't line up. Like this would have lined up if this would have been like maybe five years before bloodline. And you know, okay, oh, hey, there, there's how my Mazma got injured. That's why she's not in the background anymore. But that's not the case. So I'm like, okay, there's there's still more to come. Th- that's where I get with that puzzle picture feeling. You know, like I feel like there's there's things out there that need to be down here for me to see what's going on with the future
0: of the empire. And it's interesting the way that they handle Gallius Rax when it comes to the future of the empire, because he's forming this shadow council kind of thing that's going on. And this idea of, you know, we're going to have this group of advisors to help run things. And it includes people within the Navy, within the army, but also a propagandist, which is kind of interesting. Um, someone to sort of craft their message to you the galaxy the narrative exactly creating their own narrative uh, uh trying to basically say that you know the empire uh, was the good thing look at all the chaos from the new republic you know we're coming to save you from them kind of There's
1: thing a Great line where he's
0: like that's it we're the rebellion we're the underdogs <laughs> at which point no, you we can you can think slow it sloan is just sitting there like <laughs> are you kidding me really but the fact that he's doing this and he's manipulating the situation such that as he's sort of putting Ray on the outs, Sloan on the outs a little bit, because I don't want to get the Rays confused, R-A-E versus R-E-Y, that as he's kind of pushing her kind of off to the side and manipulating her, he also puts himself in that position of saying, basically, um, you guys need my guidance. I need to basically be the Emperor, but don't worry i can just act from behind the scenes it's cool and so on and so on it's sort of this sort of i'm going to reshape things and you wonder how much of that was within the emperor's plan before he died because he refers to like this contingency he's enacting something and that is something that i believe is also
1: referenced uh, by grand admiral rand Pensu also mentions it when the guard comes to him they they mm-hmm. mention that rex has a plan he's like oh, the plan of the palpatine like he, like there's something going on with that guy in the dark side too that i'm like what the hell is going on here
0: yeah, there's, there's something going on with it, so it's nice to see that manipulation, but I think it's interesting that, at least to me, with Sloane, we keep thinking, I think, that this is someone who has what she thinks of as the best of intentions based on what her belief is in the right form of government and the right amount of centralized control, kind of like the centrists eventually in Bloodline, and she's doing what she feels is right and honorable for that, and she actually doesn't like some of the things that Rax is doing. She even looks at the assassination attempt and the infiltration there as a and a cowardly, dishonorable way to do it. Yeah. So for Sloane, it's like she's a she may be a good person possibly, but she's on the wrong side. Whereas with Rax, with all of his manipulations and uh, compartmentalizing information, getting. The aid to Sloan, basically into bed and manipulating her into spying on Sloane and working against her and all of that. That this is a guy who is demonstrably already the bad guy. And I don't know about because a part of me says this book and this era needs a defined bad guy so that it's the New Republic good guys versus the Imperial baddies. Mm-hmm. But it was much more interesting to me when it was two different forms of government with different political ideals clashing and which one's going to come out on top. Good people on both sides with very different views of, or at least honorable people on both sides with very different views of what should be. And yes, our heroes need to come out on top, but there could be some interesting back and forth and questionable moments in between. Whereas now, with Rax being more demonstrably the bad guy, I think a lot of that political and idealistic ambiguity is gone. And it makes for a more straightforward story in this era, but politically a less interesting one from that angle. Unless we're going to see Sloan really sort of not just trying to expose Rax, but Sloan maybe sort of jockeying for control of the empire, and it becomes his way of looking at things versus hers. As opposed to theirs versus the New Republic.
1: Yeah, another thing you know that, that gets me. You were talking about how Leia, you know, being dismissed the way she is for 24 years has got to be a place that's got to be rough for. Her. The other side is when everybody comes to her aid. There was something that I, I thought was really interesting. Uh, Akbar shows up. Uh, the Vindicator's down. and We're receiving a full surrender from the crew of the Neutralizer. Well done, Admiral, and thanks for coming when I called. Leia called after him after she called Wedge. It was a gamble, of course. Akbar couldn't stop her, but he came. And because of that, she knows this will cost him. It will cost her, too, and Wedge as well, as it should. This happened outside politics. No vote made this happen. Nobody sanctioned putting these ships and these people at risk. Even Akbar worked with a skeleton crew on board his own ship, and Wedge calling on a stable of forgotten pilots many thought to be already out to pasture won't pass easy muster with Mon Mothma. But That is a problem for future Leia. And, you know, that was was interesting because, like, you know, she kind of really did hose herself in a way like if she's ever going to need any kind of backup like that again having Wedge form a Phantom Squadron okay instead of Rogue Squadron I like it but Phantom like isn't that the isn't that the Rebels thing like from Rebels they're, like, they're a menace to the Imperials clearly but uh, so that was kind of a cool touch you know Wedge he formed his own squadron and stuff but that angle of you know this is going to be a problem for future Leia you know like it's almost like a promise of another story to come down the road and that's actually one I'm kind of excited for because because it should take place much sooner than Bloodline, and yet have that Bloodline feel, and maybe that's where everything falls into that comfortable feel. Like Leia gets chastised, and after the chastization, you know they, they fall into a, a little rut, and nothing ever happens for a while, and then we get to Bloodlines, and everything moves forward again. I don't know, but you know you had mentioned too that Han was was one of the characters that really was done right, and uh, there was this great spot, uh, the banter between Han and Leia. And it's, uh, Han walks toward her. She leans against the falcon, smiling. Your worshipfulness, he yells, seeing her. Hello, scoundrel, she calls back in return. Making me walk the whole hangar, huh? I like watching you walk. You okay, he asks. I am now. I'm very angry at you, she says. Hey, I'm angry with you, making me rescue you like this. Incredulously, she says, you rescued me? This was me rescuing you, you hot-headed, thick-skulled ruffian, he smirks. I love you. She rolls her eyes. Just kiss me already, you dolt. And I yeah to me that that felt very much them bantering inside the Falcon uh, I, I got a kick out of that that was one of those great moments between them I, I I like it when the dialogue works and there were a lot of moments where the dialogue worked this is one of the ones where it worked between the big three but for the most part again it was it was like you know having uh, snaps and Sinjir bantering back and forth having Jom going at jazz and, and you know them all talking to each other there were some really great lines in the dialogue that, that I appreciated so relating to Leia in this case that you mentioned there, I think
0: that this is kind of classic Leia in a sense. I mean, she's asking forgiveness basically rather than permission. But you think back to, you know, when she was in the rebellion, many times she would take it upon herself to do something if told not to. I mean, that's kind of where the Princess Leia comic came in, though the less references to that comic, the better. That's not Leia! Um, But in a sense, this is sort of presaging the resistance, right? Because at the end of Bloodline, when she's ready to go out to the First Order and the New Republic isn't, what is she doing? Calling upon old allies who are willing to back her up regardless of what the official line is, and she'll just deal with the political consequences if need be later. So it's kind of interesting to see her already starting to take that tack, and it makes me wonder how often she will wind up doing that in the intervening years between the two books, in those decades between the two. Uh, Leia and Han... Their interaction is great, very human. They seem to very well understand each other. Like, she understands his need to do this for Chewie. She's, it seems like she's willing to let him even stay on Kashyyyk when she's ready to go back to Chandrilla, but he's like, no, you know, I'm coming back with you and is willing to say goodbye to Chewbacca for that temporarily. That banter that they have almost made me feel like they were like, hey, I love you. On the way home, let's make another baby that we can send to Luke and never see, Um, kind of thing. Uh, but I think in general... What you're getting at is, I mean, this was a very witty book. Even the narrator makes jokes, right? This was a wittily written book. And you got some of that with Aftermath, particularly with the character of Sinjir. But we didn't see, like, a broader witness. It seemed like a lot of times some of the humor, some was a little more forced in Aftermath, where this time it really feels like it's natural. And it may just be that we're more familiar with the characters, so it feels more natural. Could be that he's more familiar on the second book with them, that he's able to make it more natural. But this is one of the wittier, funnier Star Wars
1: books that I've read uh, in story group canon at this point. Yeah, another uh, great interaction was between Han and Chewie, which, you know, you mentioned this could be the last time in canon that they're together, uh, for quite a while, I guess, you know? Chewie grunts and growls. Ah, oh, you're doing fine, you big lunk. Another growl, this one a question. I, uh, wow, this is harder than he thought. Han scuffs a heel and throws up his hands like he's folding into a table. I thought this day would come later, Chewie, but something's happened, and Chewie steps up and nods, rumbling a soft response. Chewie understands. Even before Han says it, Chewie gets it. In sync, yet again, to no one's surprise. Chewie knows that Han has to go. And what's the first thing that the gigantean herring beast does? The Wookiee offers to come along right now. Han waves both hands and shakes his head as vigorously as he can, even wagging his fingers up at his friend's shaggy face. No, no, you have to stay here. We fought like hell for this, and now this is yours, okay? All yours. This is home. You got people here, and I want you to find them. You hear me? That's my last demand. No arguments. Chewie rumbles, but Han reiterates more firmly this time. I said no arguments. You be with your family. I have to go start mine.
0: And we, again, it's sort of this, this changing moment for Han. And there eight, he's able to do this, a lot of it with the dialogue. He's able to do a lot with the conversations that they're having. It's less about telling us what change someone's going through and more showing us, which is good because a lot of times when it's an internal thing, a writer will tend to handle it within narration or thoughts of the carriage rather than just having us infer it from the conversations and the interactions that they have. My favorite of this, probably in that same vein, is, is one of the instances for Sinjir. Because Sinjir, by the end, he's really kind of getting to the, back to that, you know what, after all that's happened, I think maybe I am in some way the man that I used to be, that I was trying to get away from, that at least is a useful side of things. So he goes in to actually see the guardsman, uh, Wyndham Traducier or Traducier or whatever, and uh, he basically has gone in and he's going to kill this guy. Uh, for what has just happened, for betraying the New Republic, for helping set things up for Brinton and uh, the betrayal of the Ashmead's Lot prisoners and turning on the New Republic and going after Crassus and Shale, who were captured back in the previous book, who are now were in custody and are now gone because he killed them. And so on, there's this this back and forth that happens. And uh, Sinjir basically says, or I guess uh, Sinjir opens the door, comes in, and says, I've not come to interrogate you. Oh, really? And this is the guardsmen talking. The New Republic didn't send you? They did not. I did not work for them. I paid the guard to let me in here. Interrogating you would do no one any good at this point. You've already given up what information you have. As I understand it, the New Republic Security Bureau did find your secret second apartment, and that tells quite a story. They know that you distributed the weapons for the assassination. They know that you planted the transponder on top of the Hannah City Opera House and that the transponder rebroadcast a scrambled Imperial signal to little inorganic biochips, undetectable slivers embedded in the brainstem of each of the Ashmead's Lock prisoners. They know it was you who killed Jalia Shale and Arson Crassus, and also that you helped Yuktashu escape. I'd ask you why, but I don't care. I don't care about any of this. Then why come at all? Why have you brought me to this room? Don't you want to hear my reasons? Don't you want to hear how I believe the New Republic is a hobbling, crippled thing at the outset? How the Republic will allow chaos to take hold in the vacuum of control? How? Shhh. You stupid little man. Let me tell you my reasons for being here. I no longer care about the state of the galaxy. I no longer give three dams about the Empire or the New Republic or whatever else comes rolling along when those both fade away. What I care about are the people I have in my life. I care about my friends. I've never had friends before. I had no idea how that felt. It's rather overwhelming to feel for people like that. To care about them. It's almost disgusting, frankly. It's like I can't control it. But I don't want to control it. Not anymore. I'm all in. This is boring me. Would you get to the point? Perhaps you are too insipid to understand what I'm getting at, so let me lay it out for you, traitor. You made my friends sad. And that makes me mad. And he pulls a vibro knife and kills the bastard. And again, I think Sinjar is the most interesting character of this bunch. And seeing his constant back and forth of who he was versus who he is and how he defines himself. And being pushed into doing things that are violent. And now seeing him choose to do so, but doing so on behalf of those he now cares about. That extreme attachment, almost Anakin-level attachment was great. And this was one of my favorite moments of the entire book because you see Sinjir sort of running for the cliff. And then when the group gets back together to go after Sloane at the end, I mean, he's the one that's really, yeah, I'm in. You know, I don't even care what the mission is. I don't care what you're going to say. You wanted us here because you got something for us to do. I am in. Mm-hmm. I am with you. These are my people. A great moment for Sinjir that is on top of a lot of really good character moments for that character and some of the other new characters in the book. So to me, if characters make a book, this one stands out as well-written. Again, would I have ever thought that I'd be sitting here praising (laughs) a Chuck Wendig novel after Aftermath? Hell no. But this one was really good. It's one of my favorites of story group canon now. It's a testament to how well these characters work, particularly in terms of their development in this book.
1: Well, one of the things that I found interesting was the guy that sends your kills, he tells uh, uh, that the one guy, uh, Tessu or Tenchu, he tells him that it's Emperor Rax. And yet later, which, which you know, that was kind of an interesting thing because you kind of had that feeling like, you know, Rax is kind of setting himself up as emperor. And then it was uh, about page 412. Are you claiming the mantle of emperor, Boromas? Rax, hmm, I think not. I'm not worthy. Grand Admiral then. "'No, I'm far too humble for such mighty titles. "'As I am the advisor to this group and to the Empire at large, "'I shall take for myself the title of Counselor to the Empire, "'serving as an interstitial leader only "'until Grand Admiral Sloane returns to us.' Oh, "'This is unprecedented,' Burham blusters. "'Of course, the old man would be the one to protest. "'Age brings stubbornness. Age diminishes vision. "'Counselor is not a title in our records, "'and it leaves us ineffectively leaderless.' Our record must evolve, much as the Empire must evolve, Rex says sharply. Too sharply, he fears. He must maintain the illusion. He must lead his men to the conclusion he seeks, not the conclusion they want or expect. Again, I expect this to be a temporary title. Borum again. As temporary as the Emperor's title when he ceased to be Chancellor of a Lost Republic? At that, Rex smirks. Perhaps. And why Jakku? The General is pressing his luck. Jakku is a wasteland. It has no strategic value to us. No resources. No population to enslave. It has... It will be our proving ground, Rex says. We will test ourselves on Jakku. And we will do so far from the eyes of the galaxy. Far from the eyes of Mon Mothman or Psychophants. And when the time is right, when we have whetted ourselves to a vicious point, we will strike once again. The Senate is injured. The Republic is wounded. We will go in for the kill. But it is too soon, and we are too weak. In their eyes, the firelight of uncertainty and fear. That is fine. He needs them only so long. All of them but Hux. Hux will be necessary. And it's interesting because, you know, he's still playing this group. And yet, through all of this, through everything he's done, Hux is who's necessary. Hux is the key here. I mean, so he says Jakku is the proving ground. Well, we know there is a huge battle that happens on Jakku. It was the Empire's last push, and they lose. So if that's the proving ground and they lose, could that be where Gallius Rax dies? And therefore, is this whole book all about Hux rising to power? Because Hux is the key, because the Empire needs more children, and Hux teaches children. He was one of the instructors at the Arcanus uh, Academy. So is Hux then the key to the First Order later? Clearly, he seems to be the one that will, will live through it. It was one of those things that, like, you know, they keep talking about Jakku being this proving ground and, and all this stuff about Jakku, you know, and even, even the actual last chapter of the book goes back to Jakku and it talks about, uh, you know, the boy is going to have to guard this planet. And he is uh, it goes, good, this, this man is Palpatine that they're talking about. Good, then I have your first task, young galley. You will go back to Jakku. And the spot where the dirt where my droids were operating is precious, not just to me, but to the galaxy at large. He sweeps his decrepit hand to the greater universe. It is significant. It was significant a thousand years ago. It will be significant again. You will go back there, and you will monitor my droids excavating the ground. Then I will send more droids, and they will build something there below the ground. I want you to guard this space. Can you do that? Guard it? I'm just a boy. Yes, but a resourceful boy, I'd wager. I am resourceful. He doesn't know if that's true, but what good is saying the opposite? I will guard it. So something underneath the sands of Jakku is huge. And whether we find out what that is in the next book, or they leave that later for a movie or another book's plots, I don't know, but something major is going to happen on Jakku. And again, we know the fleet's going to get wiped out majorly on Jakku. I'm just, I'm curious as to how we get from empire's end to where the first order is during bloodlines because that right now, there's just a huge gap and all I see is just destruction. I'm just like, they had to have, you know, the Phoenix aspect of rebuilding the Empire from the dust of the Empire that was rebuilt before. You know, like, I just, I feel like this is one of many attempts. Like, this could be the Empire Reborn that we're seeing right now in Legends, or, you know, one of those, like, one of the many startups that show up that really aren't there in the grand scheme of things, and just elements of it are. In this case, the element being Hux. Empire Reborn, Second Imperium, and
0: so on and so on. Uh, It's Kueller again, folks. You mentioned how Rax is sort of, taking that, you know, no, no, I can't be emperor thing. Uh, I mean, isn't that what all dictators do, right? You know, even Papati's like, I love democracy. And while well, he's taking it away, right, in the process of it. This whole, like, like stepping back and saying, well, I'm not going to take a leadership. That's, I'm not worthy of that as a way of manipulating people into eventually putting them right into that spot. I mean, Napoleon did that kind of thing. I think about, um, he, in a lot of ways, kind of like, and this is the Shakespeare nerd in me coming out, but in Julius Caesar, the way that Mark Antony deals with the crowd, there's that famous line that everybody seems to know of the, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. And people think, oh, well, that just means that he's, you know, he is against Caesar. But no, Mark Antony was on Caesar's side. He's angry that Caesar has died. But he knows that if he praises Caesar, he's going to wind up getting flat from the crowd because Brutus was just out there getting them essentially on his side, one of the killers. And here's him. But in his speech, as he's supposedly taking the side of the killers, killers, constantly calling them honorable men. He's doing it in an increasingly sarcastic way. So by the time you're done, he's like, oh, and they are honorable men. After he just talked up, you know, why they should have loved Caesar and not turned on him and not supported the killers. And By the time it's done, the crowd is completely on Antony's side and are calling for blood to go after Brutus. In a lot of ways, that's kind of how I see Rax here. Rax is this guy who will constantly use whatever means necessary, even if it's basically a whole hell of a lot of reverse psychology kind of stuff and, d- and diminishing himself in how he speaks. So that his own supposed lack of ambition is what is going to allow him to take control in the first place. You know, it's like I, I pretend to lack ambition because it feeds my ambition and my goals. Uh, I am for to make a, a, a political analogy for those who heard of who's heard the phrase I'm referring to before. Uh, he is issuing uh, the ambition means for the ambition ends, so to speak. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this character goes and where this story goes because we do know that there is something on Jakku. It's been referred to as an Imperial Research Facility in the past, in other works, but they're always just kind of randomly, barely mentioning it and then never giving us any details on it. This is the first we've seen a story that really seems to be leaning towards maybe giving us answers to it. And it'd be nice to know exactly what that is. I can't imagine them not explaining what it is in Empire's End after they used the prologue and epilogue and the origin of Gallius Rax to get us interested in it in the first place. But then again, I thought the big mystery of the fleet admiral's identity was going to be a mystery to be solved here. And they just kind of threw it at us. Imagine if we get book three, Empire's End, and in the prologue, they're like, so about that research facility filled with this, 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 and this. And we're like, wait, 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 what? Huh? Oh, I guess they're just... You know, they're
1: just dropping that mystery on us. They're like, it's, it's Wayland from Legends. It's also the cloning facility from Dantooine. And what really we're finding out is that there is a, a, a cloning facility where Palpatine cloned Anakin, except for it was after he was in the Vader costume. And therefore the body was always messed up and it became Snoke. And you can't really do
0: that with Anakin uh, because they they try to get to Snoke, we had to do all these multiple clones. And every <laughs> time you make a clone, you have to add a vowel. So <laughs> Snoke's real name is Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> uh, and we've gone far afield. So I guess um, to wrap us up, uh, I don't know. I personally would recommend this one. I think it's tough because really to get the most out of the characters, you'd have to probably recommend reading the original Aftermath too. But if we're just looking at this book on its merits, I would recommend it because I really enjoyed it, enjoyed the characters. I now actually do want to see more of these characters, especially Sinjir, whereas I was a little ambivalent about what to expect and how much I actually wanted to see the characters back or not after reading Aftermath. For those of you who are put off by Aftermath, as I was, as Mm -hmm. I think Mark was, Yep. Um, this has sort of redeemed the Aftermath name, at least for this trilogy. It now remains to be seen whether the third book is going to live up to life debt or drop back down to the level of Aftermath. The pressure's on for Winding.
1: No, you're right. The pressure is on. Uh, this book has set the trilogy... In a place where it can be redeemed, because uh, yeah, the first book was a hard read and a hard sell for me as a Star Wars fan. This book, I, I'm I'm of the opinion I would say, yeah, go ahead, skip the first one, jump right into this. I think you're going to enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I I liked the character interactions. I liked the setup. I'm really excited where the next book's going to come. Uh, where it's going to go from there. Uh, you know, the issues that I had with the book, thankfully, were all small. So, and I had a lot less than I did the first one around. So that hands down, this was a much better. Experience experience for me uh you know I, I kind of wish that this would have been chuck Wendig's first uh foray into star wars because i think i could uh, uh you know give him a fair shake uh yeah if you will i'm excited for empire's end more so than i ever thought i would be uh and i think that that's a testament to this book this book really does a great job of setting up where we're going to go in the next one so i'm really looking forward to that <laughs> now that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the star wars report website second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com Dot com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. A positive one, preferably. And you can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So, if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at com. now lastly before we go we want to mention to you our sponsors Audible if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles you can explore the Star Wars Legends universe or the canon one or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members they can exchange any book within 12 months that's one year with no question asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that confused Star Wars
0: fans will pick up the Empire's End comic book series, thinking it's the third act of this story, and be really, really confused. Hello, Beyonders. Now it's time to find out how you might be able to win a copy of Life Debt. Yes, I want up with an extra copy, a pristine copy, mind you, of the regular edition of the hardback of Life Debt, and we want to give that away to some lucky listener. To enter this contest, simply send an email to swbeyondfilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. In the subject line, put Life Debt, and in the body of the email, make sure you put your name and address just in case you win. We'll keep this open until October 17th, the day that the next edition of the Star Wars Timeline Gold will be released. Little bit of cross-promotion there. And then we'll draw the winner. Good luck! <laughs> We get into the spoiler section, we'll hit those three elephants or banthas in the room from Aftermath and do them sort of in relation to this and see if it has changed or to to what extent it's changed. Did you just hear the cat going thunkety thunk I thunky Did thunky? I thought he was trying to snipe you or
1: something?
0: Ah, <sighs> psycho! Crap. I don't know why. Is this the new cat or is this the this old- the new cat? And I don't know why they put cocaine inside wet cat food. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so let me say that again. Uh, it it gets sort of deferred. Nah. Chuck Windig te- sins. Hmm. Don't you want to hear how I believe the New Republic is hobbling? Cr- I no longer. C- I keep f***ing this up. I think I'm getting a migraine, is what's happening. Uh oh. I gonna. C- God. Damn it.